are listening to the Issues on Appeal podcast, focusing on timely and timeless issues of appellate practice and professionalism. Here is your host, Dwayne Diker. Thanks for joining me for episode 61, Effective Immediately. This show is again sponsored by Court Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. More about CSBA later in the show. For this episode, I'm joined by board-certified appellate specialist Deneen Wasilek to discuss a recent and a little unexpected change to Rule 1.530, Florida Rules of Civil Procedure, that is, you guessed it, effective immediately. We'll talk about the substance of the amendment and the timing of its effective date. My conversation with Deneen Wasilek is coming up next. So, Deneen, welcome back to the Issues on Appeal podcast. So glad you're joining me again. Thank you so much for the invite, Dwayne. Of course, uh, always. So I wanted to talk to you about this situation that has uh, come up uh, rather unexpectedly, I think, on August 25th, just a few days before we recorded this. Uh, the Florida Supreme Court amended uh, Rules 1.530, uh, the rule for rehearing in the civil rules, and Rule 12.530, the family law rule equivalent. And it's a pretty simple amendment on its face. Um, it adds just a single sentence uh, into the <laughs> the middle of 1.530A, which says, to preserve for appeal a challenge to the sufficiency of a trial court's findings in a final judgment, a party must raise that issue in a motion for rehearing under this rule. Um that's that's definitely a change in some appellate districts, isn't it? It definitely is. And, you know, I was looking at this, Wayne, and, and in the second district court of appeal, um, the court had really specifically addressed this issue in the case of Engel v. Engel, which a lot of our listeners will probably be familiar with, um, 277 Southern 3rd 697 for the geeks among us. Um, <laughs> but uh, they, you know, and, they, and the court basically said that there's not a necessity to have the rehearing in order to preserve the issue. And it gave several reasons, including, you know, the fact that it could be reviewed either way, that the onus should be on the judges and not on the um, litigants to make sure that the, uh, the rulings that they make comply with statutes. Um, and that it was very uh, expensive and unwieldy for litigants, particularly in the family law arena, to have to go through that extra hoop of filing for rehearing before seeking an appeal. And so, you know, that was the second district's take on it. And, um, you know, there is, and then actually the fourth also kind of said the same thing in Fox v. Fox. Um, but then other other districts had said that you do need to file that rehearing in order to preserve your right to appeal a lack of sufficient factual findings. Yeah, in fact, in that Engel case, which I'll, I'll cite to in the in the show notes, sure. uh, the second DCA actually certifies a conflict uh, with the first, the third, and the fifth. So we, we definitely did have a, a split brewing amongst the DCAs. And, you know, while I think that the second DCA's position was, you know, well-reasoned, they gave a lot of good reasons why they believe it should not be required, um, that there was definitely a, a split. And I think it probably made sense um, that this should be addressed in some way. Yeah, I think absolutely. You know, whenever there is a 
a split and something particularly when it comes to issues of preservation, which can really make or break even more so than anything else, your right to appeal, it does make sense to get to certainty. And we do have, um, you know, procedures for that, such as certifying a conflict, as was done here, um, and getting that, you know, briefed up to the Supreme Court in this way, but that's not the way it was dealt with in this instance. No, no. So instead of the normal rulemaking process, which you and I have both been a part of uh, as lawyers uh, involved in the rules committees, Mm -hmm. uh, it's worth noting that this change didn't go through the normal rulemaking process. It was, according to the court, uh, on its own motion, which is part of the reason why this was kind of a surprise. (laughs) Correct. Yeah. I mean, generally speaking, when rules are going to be changed, you know, the bar has many, several rulemaking uh, committees that are made up of volunteer attorneys who are, you know, expert in their respective fields for family law, for appellate practice, for judicial administration, for criminal law, all of those, for civil law, all of those th- those um, areas that have sets of rules have committees that their job is to sort of figure out ways to improve the rules whenever possible and go through a pretty ordered process to do that. Yeah, and these are not small committees, and and they take their work very seriously. And mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I've been involved in in many years of these discussions, and <laughs> we battle over where periods go and commas go and what words mean what and that sort of thing. So the committees take their work pretty seriously. But yeah, this um, this didn't go through that process, and uh, in fact. Because it did not go through the process, because these amendments were not previously published for comment, uh, mm-hmm. the court noted that all interested persons have 75 days in which to file a comment on the rule, which I think is November 8, uh, mm-hmm. 2022. So, and the opinion has some instructions to do that. But, but I thought that was interesting, uh, and I, I imagine they will get some comments, but. You know, one of the things that attracted my attention about this the most was not necessarily the substantive change, because I think that uh, it probably does make sense. You know, I, I'm not necessarily taking a position about whether uh, the rehearing should be required or not. I honestly, in my practice, this doesn't come up enough for me to have thought through that. But uh, it certainly there's there's a value in certainty, like you mentioned, especially when it comes to preservation of error. So it, it seems like this was something that should have been addressed. And I think there probably was some time sensitivity to it just because of the mess that is coming down the road with the uh, new 6th DCA and what that's going to do to precedent, you know, in the in the rearranged uh, uh, 5th. Uh, and second uh, DCA. So, so I, I could see there's some um, timing issues here, but it was strange to me or a little at least unusual that the court made this effective immediately. I do think so. I know that semi-recently that happened another time with the rules that govern um, govern uh, pro bono entities. And I was sort of involved in in the uh, comment on that. And again, the Supreme Court issued an entirely new rule. This was a much more complex rule than the one that we're talking about here um, <clears throat> on its own motion and then said, we'll take commentary afterward rather, but this is effective, you know, anyway. Um, and I, I think that that is a pretty backwards way 
to approach this kind of rulemaking. I mean, so, you know, I think it's it's you know arguable that the Supreme Court has the right to sua sponte say we need to change a rule. Um, and they even arguably have the right to do it the way they're, you know, have the power to do it the way they did it here with making it effective immediately and having commentary afterward. But I really believe in a non-emergent situation, there's really no reason to make something effective immediately without any chance for input from interested parties. You know, in a, if it came up in a case law situation, then you'd have the interested parties and potentially amicus coming in and saying, this is why the rule should be the way it is. Um, in a normal rulemaking proceeding, a proposed rule is published in the bar news and published you know, by the Supreme Court. There's a commentary period before it comes into play. Um, and then here we just have effective today. This is the rule statewide and you know, we'll take commentary, but what's going to happen from that commentary? Are they going to change the rule again? And then we're going to have a really short period of time where you know, it was one way and then it was another um, are they going to change the effective date and cause more confusion that way? It just seems like not the most um, the most helpful way to do this kind of rule change. Today's show is sponsored by Court Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. If you have a client needing to stay enforcement of a judgment in Florida or any other state or federal court, contact CSBA. Chances are you don't deal with appellate bonds on a daily basis, but when you do, it's important and it's urgent. CSBA has an extensive collection of educational and reference materials on their website, including articles like, How Much Does an Appeal Bond Cost?, or Using Real Estate to Secure Appeal Bonds, and even has a state-by-state -state guide to appeal bond requirements. But if you still have questions or just want to talk to a knowledgeable appellate bond specialist, call CSBA at 877 810-5525. Their contact information is always in the show notes, but I suggest you take an opportunity right now to add their contact information to your own contact list so you're ready the next time your client needs a court bond. CSBA is a national agency that assists with court bonds all over the United States, but has extensive experience in Florida. In addition to being a longtime sponsor of this podcast, CSBA is a premier sponsor of the Florida Bar's Appellate Practice Section. The next time your client needs a supersedious bond, please give Court Surety Bond Agency a call. These folks are experts in this area. They'll guide you and your client through the process, giving you one less thing to worry about. I, I see two, two different aspects of this. One is I see them, perhaps the, the thought process was, well, this isn't that big a change because it's the law in three districts anyway, and so it's probably not... Uh, a big deal, and you know we want to get it done, so we're we're getting it done. But I also see the 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 flip side of that, which is particularly with something like this that relates so importantly to preservation of error and can be so critical. Uh, there's definitely if they do make this change, there's such momentum to keep the change because, like you just said, you're going to have a situation where depending on what date of what the final judgment you're, you've you've got this morass of preservation issues that are tricky and can be a trap if they start you know now accepting comments and are willing to change uh the rule 
uh, boy, it becomes a lot stickier than if they had proposed the changes, some comments, and then you know made it effective January first. Yeah, well, and, and even even if they didn't want to wait for the comments, there are a lot of ways that this could have been written to take out a lot of the uncertainty that it creates. I mean, certainly saying effective today, that is the case. My first question is that effective today and therefore, you know, a judgment that was entered yesterday is subject to this rule? Um, or is it only judgments that start from today? And there, were, there could have been a pretty easy way to make that part clear. I mean, yes, it's only a, you know, potentially a 15 day period of cases that are affected, but our courts handle a lot of cases in 15 days. Um, <laughs> no, and also there is, you know, the issue of, uh, you know, while I recognize that when a, when a court decision comes down, there's no sort of warning on that. And so arguably that's the case with these rule changes too, that there's no warning. You just have to deal with it. Traditionally, rule changes have a timeline horizon, and the reason for it is to make sure the bar is educated for those rule changes that can, you know, to make sure that they're being followed correctly. Um, and, you know, even even a few weeks notice allows more time for the information to get out when we're talking about a situation where you're now creating an obligation within 15 days of this rule being written that you either have to file rehearing or you're passing up your opportunity to appeal. Um, You know, there's a really short horizon for lawyers, you know, on the ground to know about this, make sure they're advising their clients about this. Um, You know, it's not only a malpractice trap for lawyers, but it's also a real trap for the clients who are trying to, get justice in their cases. And maybe now's a good time to mention, I I did a quick search to try and figure out exactly which kinds of cases this would affect. Um, And not surprisingly, the majority are in the family law arena. Um, You know, I found cases about the statutes about termination of parental rights, permanent and temporary guardianship, equitable distribution, dependency, alimony, timesharing, all of those require the judge to make specific findings of fact in their judgment. And if the judge does not make those specific findings of fact, then unless now, unless you file for rehearing, you do not get the opportunity to appeal that. And, you know, what to me, while I understand the, um, the idea that give the trial judge the first chance to fix its stuff, um, you know, on the other hand, that's a, you know, a lot of times the litigants in family law cases or certainly in terminational parental rights cases or dependency cases um, are, you know, don't have a huge budget for lawyers and requiring that additional step um, can be daunting, can be cost prohibitive. And it seems like you know something as important as permanent guardianship or termination of parental rights that, you know, that kind of waiver should not be that's it shouldn't be that simple to waive something that that's that the uh, that the judge was required to do by statute anyway, in my view. Uh, the other one, by the way, the only civil one that I was able to find on a quick search, and there may well be more, is, um, you know, 57105 sanctions require statutory findings. Um, so if you're getting an award of those and, they, and the sanctions order is not complete, you better file a rehearing before you file or you're going to, you know, lose your chance to challenge that. 
I, I think that's right, and this doesn't come up a lot in my civil practice, but it, it does sound like it's it's an issue for family law practitioners. And yeah, it's mm-hmm. scary, you know. I mean, I guess in theory we should all be reading all the Florida Supreme Court cases <laughs> as they come out, the day they come out. But you know, the practical reality is is people don't, and so much of what comes out of the of the court is is not you know particularly relevant to most people's everyday practice. So, understandably so. So. You know the the family law practitioners have to find this out somehow, yeah. And, and maybe because it's unusual, then maybe there's more people talking about it, or you know, I'm sure it'll be covered in the Florida Bar News if you read legal newspapers and that kind of thing. But yeah. uh, it's it's a little bit scary that that something came out uh, on such a short fuse. And we got to hope that uh, people are on top of it so that they're not losing rights for their clients and, I don't know, potentially committing malpractice. I mean, maybe that's kind of an interesting issue, I guess, as to whether it would be malpractice to not know about a a rule change that came out sort of subtle rule change that came out, you know, unexpectedly. Uh, It's an interesting issue. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I just, I think that, um, you know, I can see the policy again. I can see the policy reasons in both directions to why this should or should not be the rule. Um, but the point is that there really should have been a policy discussion amongst interested parties, uh, whether that be a a case that litigates to the Florida Supreme Court. And I did take a look, and it doesn't look like the folks in the Engel case um, asked the Supreme Court to review that issue, and so it was not ripe to bring up in that situation because it wasn't done. And I know we are dependent on individual um, litigants to, you know, decide whether to take that next step to the Florida Supreme Court. And that's not always possible, even if it would be a great policy thing for the rest of us. You know, I get that. Um, But there's still the procedures that we have for for rule changes that could have been um, followed here and that just weren't for whatever reason. Yeah. Well, it will be interesting to watch and to to read the comments <laughs> and to yes. see what, what, what people have to say about, about both the substance and the procedure and, and see where we go from here. Deneen, thanks for being on the podcast. As always, I appreciate uh, your insights and I thank you for being on the show. Thank you. I appreciate the invite and I hope uh, I hope things go well. Thanks. Thanks to Deneen Wasilek for being my guest on the show again. Remember, podcasts are never legal advice, and nothing that I say or my guests say should ever be interpreted as legal advice for any particular situation. But if you're a lawyer who needs the help of an appellate lawyer, I'm happy to try and help. My contact information is always in the show notes. And please consider using our sponsor, Court Surety Bond Agency, for your client's appellate bond needs. Their contact information is also in the show notes. Please take a moment Add it to your contacts so that you're ready when your client needs a supersedious bond. As promised, the podcast is not on a regular schedule, but I hope to talk about important things like this that come up in the appellate community. You can expect more discussion coming up about the new 6DCA and, of course, the upcoming appellate practice section retreat to London. London is indeed calling, and the Issues on Appeal podcast will be there. I hope you will continue to download and listen. Thank you for considering this week's Issues on Appeal.